0: Grab a seat. I want to welcome the kiddos, as you guys are probably starting to realize every first of the month, we invite ages seven and up to join us, so it's good to have you guys are all over here. That's kind of funny. Um, yeah, that was, did you plan that? I don't know. There you are. <laughs> yeah, welcome kiddos. Good to have you. Um, have you guys ever heard the expression, let's see what they're made of? Ever heard that expression before? Let's see what they're made of. That expression is usually used when someone is about to go through something where they're going to really have to dig deep, where the essence of who they truly are and and, and what they're truly made of is going to be exposed or seen when all the the veneer and all the layers and all the shallowness of, of what someone might portray as their identity is taken away, and you see who they really are. What we're made of is, is ultimately, as humans, we are made up of a combination of what we think, what we truly love, who we trust, and all of the things that we do. All those things really kind of culminate to create who we truly are. And, and suffering and tribulation and struggle and hardship and persecution, they have this, this very uncanny ability to sort of strip back all the veneer and expose who we really are, what we really love who we really trust, and the bulk of what we really have done in our life. When the fake, or when fake faith, um, or we can fake faith in fair weather, but when the heat is really on, we find out what we truly love. And that's kind of what our our passage is about this morning. Um, This morning, Daniel is going to face perhaps his greatest trial that we've seen, at least in this narrative, And what we're going to see is we're going to see what Daniel's really made of. We're going to see who Daniel really was. And even more than that, we're going to see what it was that made Daniel who he really was. We're going to actually get to see literally behind the curtain, in the window, into Daniel's personal, devotional, spiritual life. And we're not only going to see the character and the grit and the trust and the faith that he had in God, we're going to see the kind of life that he lived that actually fostered and created that kind of faith in the first place. We have a great lesson to learn here, I think, about what it looks like to truly trust God in the midst of struggle. Today, I think our text answers this question. How can we overcome and remain faithful in the face of the most dire of circumstances? Something we need to think about, something we need to consider. Let me just kind of remind you where we're at in the book of Daniel. If you're, if you're a guest this morning, if you're joining us uh, in Daniel chapter 6, let me get you a little bit up to speed. We're, we're coming to the end of the first half, part 1, if you will, of the book of Daniel. You can split Daniel into two symmetrical halves, chapters 1 through 6 and chapters 7 through 12. And chapters 1 through 6 are, are, are very obviously different from chapters 7 through 12 in that they are primarily narrative they're primarily story, and that's kind of where we've been. I I actually think the first half is really the easy part. The second half is where it's going to get really interesting, um, as far as for me to to get up here and try to make it it make sense. So uh, it's it's very, very much a tonal change in kind of the direction of the book. And so today and next week, we're going to finish out chapter six. We're going to see the end of sort of the narrative section. And the next... uh, after Christmas, we'll dive into more of the apocalyptic, prophetic uh, visions of Daniel, which perhaps maybe you've pre read. Um, you can see one of them sort of depicted up here in the graphic that Mike Moore made for us. Um, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. I can't wait to look at it. But today, again, we're going to see perhaps the most famous story in the book of Daniel, perhaps the one um, that you're most familiar with. And because you're most familiar with, I'm going to have to just encourage you to sort of peel back for a moment the flannel graph image in your mind that you're seeing right now. With the these like cute fuzzy little lions sort of cuddling and snuggling with Daniel at night who's a young man. And this really, you know, it, you got to get rid of that for a minute. Some of you guys didn't grow up in church. And you're like, what are you smoking? What are you talking about? For those of you guys that did grow up in church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, we, brought, we brought flannel graph back, by the way. We use it back there. Um, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, why not, man? It's, it's like almost three-dimensional if you count the centimeter, the millimeter of felt. Um, it's good stuff. Anyways. Our text falls shortly after the events that took place uh, last week and the week before. Pastor Ryan unpacked in chapter 5 the events that took place with Belshazzar and the fall of the Babylonian uh, kingdom. Now, historians might pretend to know exactly why Babylon fell when it fell. or but we know from the word, we actually know why Babylon fell. It wasn't because of any kind of political or geopolitical overthrow. It was because God said the time for Babylon was done. And he wrote an executive order, not on the desk, but on the wall in front of Belshazzar while he was partying with the, 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 uh, the instruments from the temple. He said, time is up. God raised up the kingdom of Babylon for his purposes, and he ended Babylon for his purposes. And where we punch in here at chapter 6 is the transition of kingdoms, the transition of administrations. The Babylonian Empire is ended. And now it is the era of the Medo-Persian Empire. If you remember the statue with the different golds that we looked at, this is, or the the different metals, pardon me, that we looked at, this is the silver era, the, the upper torso, the shoulders, and, and chest of, of the the, um, the legacy of man's dominion and rule on this earth. So Medo-Persia essentially assimilated Babylon and basically wrapped them into their much larger, much grander, much more powerful empire. Babylon became one of 127 districts in the Medo-Persian empire, and, and it continued to, to, to live and thrive, but it was now under an entirely different administration. So Daniel, uh, he finds himself in an entirely new court with an entirely new king serving an entirely new empire. And we're going to see that uh, as, we, as we dive in here this morning. It's worth noting, by the way, Daniel's no he's not a young guy anymore. He's probably in his 80s in this narrative. So even though, you know, when you look at the flannel graph, he looks like a young guy or whatever, you need to picture Daniel, this old prophet in his 80s, he has a strong and road-tested faith, but it stood atop some old, aged legs. When you imagine him being, you know, hoisted out of the lion's den or thrown into the lion's den, just imagine, this guy's fairly old, okay? He's, he's in the fourth quarter of his life. And by the way, just a side note, for, for those of you guys that are in your fourth quarter or considering coming into your fourth quarter uh, of your life, uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to be funny. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. Um, I just want to point out, I just want to point out that there's a lot of biblical figures in the Bible that have done the most incredible parts of their faith journey in their fourth quarter of life, okay? I mean, I'm thinking about Abraham. I'm thinking about Moses. Moses was an old man by the time he actually led the Israelites out and through the wilderness. I'm thinking of Zechariah, right? The father of John the Baptist. I mean, there's so many stories about old saints that did not fall asleep at the wheel. Now, there's also some stories in the Bible about old saints that fell asleep at the wheel and things went really bad for them. I'm thinking of David. In his later years of his life, things started to kind of fall off. So I think there's, you know, just, just at, a, at face value, Daniel's age should remind us that there's really never going to be a time in our faith journey in this age where you can sort of let off the gas or coasts. You don't know when your hardest challenge is coming. You don't know when your biggest tribulation is coming. You don't know when God is going to bring the central feature of your life and building the kingdom at what age you're going to be. Don't assume it's already done. Okay, so just that's a freebie. Take that for what it's worth. It may have been that Daniel actually needed his entire life to prepare his faith and the quality of his faith for this event that we're going to look at this morning and next week. Very well could have been. So let's dive into the text, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap back around and make some some uh, application. Let's work our way through the narrative. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120. Satraps. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. Who is Darius? The biblical author inserts these kings as though we would know who they are, but we, as the reader, often need to stop and actually ask the question, who is this, this person? Okay, now, it's sort of debated among scholars who Darius actually is. I'll give you the two primary positions. I don't wanna spend too much time on this. Some scholars think that Darius was a title given to Caesar, or pardon me, Caesar, that's later, uh, given to um, Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian, who was the king of the entire Persian empire. It's it's possible. More likely, I think the other position is that Darius was actually not the king of all Persia, like Cyrus, but he was a a provisional king, uh, a, a provincial king who was just set over the district of Babylon may have been a historical figure uh, who, go, who goes by uh, the name of Gubrias. If you're looking for a, chill, uh, a name for your kid, um, I would re- definitely recommend Gubrias. I think that's great. It's a good, strong name. Um, yeah, so Darius could be this this historical figure. The, the rub is, is that, that we don't have a historical or, historical or extra-biblical, um, you know, we don't have anything written about this guy, Darius, so we're trying to figure out exactly who he was. But it's really neither here nor there. What we do know is that he was in charge of the district, at least of Babylon within the, the Persian Empire. So verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom. Now, you're saying, what's a satrap? Um, they're the people that are going to set the satrap for Daniel and throw him in the lions. Ah, boo. That was, d- that was dumb. I, that, was really, that was really dumb. Um, I. Don't know why I said that. Uh, satraps were they, they were essentially provincial govern, or provincial governors. They were like they, they, they governed over districts. You know when you're when you're trying to figure out how to organize a massive empire, you, you need a lot of layers of hierarchical uh, authority, right? So, so these 120 satraps were, were sort of the ones governing in Babylon. Now over them, three high officials, so these would be sort of the, the um, this would be the accountability oversight committee, right? There's three that are over these 120 satraps of whom Daniel was one. So Daniel apparently got pulled out of retirement. Remember, he was kind of done. And then, and then uh, he, he popped out of nowhere to tell Belshazzar and interpret these words on the wall. And now he's found himself in this administration of the Medo-Persian Empire, says, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. So Daniel's part of the three that is to oversee the 120 satraps. And why? Because Darius knows that Daniel is a um, a trustworthy, competent statesman. He knows that Daniel has a credit report that shows that he has consistent character in the way that he, he um, runs things, and, and, and he knows that, that these 120 satraps are, are not all to be trusted. So he places them under the authority and the watchful eye of Daniel, which is weird because politicians are usually totally trustworthy, right? Some are, just, I mean, I'm not saying they're all bad, um, Just a lot of them. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. In other words, he had a very godly, very likable, very trustworthy, very strong, very competent disposition. His attitude was good. He's the kind of guy you want to promote. And there's a lot of reasons that we could probably assume why that was. One of which was Daniel wasn't trying to get the king's job. He doesn't care about the king's job, you know? So that, that's, that's the kind of guy you wanna hire, right? He's not out, he's not trying to slit his throat like so many of these other satraps that are trying to take the king's role. Now the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So there's kind there's sort of this anticipation of a promotion for Daniel that he's gonna ultimately be the, the lead guy, the main guy in the entire kingdom, okay? So that's all important, that's all backstory. Verse four, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So the reality is here, that these guys don't like the management style of Daniel. They don't like the management style of Daniel because he probably holds him accountable. Okay, either that or they want his job. But either way, these satraps want Daniel removed. This is a a political ploy. They want him out of the way. And so they start going, uh, you know, digging through his mail and hacking into his inbox and looking at his social media feed to see if they can find some skeletons in his closet, which typically is not hard to do when a guy's been, you know, in an office for 80 years. I mean, I can't think of any politicians that have been in office for 80 years in our, oh, never mind. Sorry, we have a lot of politicians. Right, There's all kinds of scandals. There's all kinds of stuff. You don't have to look very far in most of the politicians in our world to find stuff, but these guys go digging and they find nothing. They got nothing on Daniel. Not a single thing. They don't have anything they can blackmail him with. They don't have anything that they can, that they can use to discredit or undermine his position because he was a godly guy. He was a godly guy. So, what they do is, since they can't get the player to cheat, they cheat the player. Okay? They cheat the player. It, is, uh, one, it was once said, it is known beforehand what an honest, or it, if it is known beforehand what an honest man will do in certain circumstances, then control the circumstances and you can control the man. They can't really get anything on Daniel, so they're just going to sort of cheat to find a way to, to get him um, at odds with the king, is essentially what they decide to do. Verse uh, 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, or Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, is that true? No. Who did they not ask? anybody? Daniel. Daniel, They didn't didn't ask Daniel. Oh, we talked to everybody. Everybody agrees. That's a little side note here. Beware of overly confident, overly asserted groupthink. Everybody thinks it's fine to just move in and live with each other before you get married. Everybody knows. I mean, oh man, my, my wife found some of these the other day. They were like um, they were like illegal or banned advertisements from like the 40s, and the, the, the best one was like there was a doctor just smoking cigarettes, and it was like, everybody knows cigarettes are good for you, or something like that, you know? And then there was like a baby drinking a Coca-Cola. It's like, everybody knows babe, you know, babies should drink soda, right? Like, beware for that kind of stuff. Beware when someone says, hey, everybody thinks this. These guys come to Darius and they're like, hey, everybody's on board. We already talked to everybody, we did all the research, we did all the work. Man, I'm so tired of hearing people say the research says about things that clearly are not right. The the research all says, we talked to all the experts, we got all, everybody agrees, King Darius, this is going to be a good idea. And here's what they suggest. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Now, what was the injunction that they wanted him to sign? It was basically a decree that they would not be able to go to their god through any other mediator besides Darius. Now, this is not anti-polytheism. Remember, these Persians, these Babylonians, they're all polytheists. They have a plethora, a buffet of gods that they worship, and they're fine with that. But what Darius is saying is he has the, he's saying or what's being suggested to him is that anyone that wants to go to a God has to go through the mediator of Darius, okay? Now, why are they putting this forth? Because they know Daniel will never do it. They know Daniel's never going to go through Darius to talk to Yahweh. That's just not how it works, right? Right? This is just not how it works. And we know, as Christians, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, right? Take note of this, by the way. False teachers always present themselves as exclusive mediators. You want to The first thing that should prick your interest when someone is a false, when you're trying to determine if someone is a false teacher is that they claim to be the access point They claim to be the way that they hear from God. I have special knowledge from God. Watch out. I can get you in with God. I have this this secret access point. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, this whole suggestion to Darius is extremely appealing for two reasons. One, it's political, and two, pride. First, political. If he puts this injunction into place, it's a way for him to see who's going to virtue signal. It's a way for him to see who's going to really swear allegiance. It's a way for him to know who's really on his team, who's really on board with his new administration. The other thing it, pr- it appeals to is his pride. It appeals to his ego. Because at the heart of every non-believer, at the heart of every person who, who, who uh, denies God is a desire to be God. It's at the very heart of the religion of our day, which is humanism. We've made ourselves the mediator in many ways, right? We've cut Christ out of of deal. So they suggest this to Darius in verse 10. When Daniel knew, so he hears, after it's already been signed, he hears when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed. And he gave thanks before his God As he had done previously. Take note of that phrase. Now notice what Daniel doesn't do here. He doesn't stay up till two in the morning angry tweeting about the the policies of Darius. He doesn't get on social media and try to get some kind of litigation and get some kind of thing signed. He doesn't stamp his feet. He doesn't throw a fit. He doesn't even go to the king and try to pull his weight to see if he can get this injunction overturned. He just does... What he always does, just to faithfully get on his knees toward Jerusalem three times a day, and pray to his God. Daniel could care less. He's an old man. He trusts God. He's not concerned. Now, I, it's it's probably not fair to say he's not concerned. He's probably praying about this. But he's clearly not trying to go and manipulate the situation. He just lets the chips fall. He does what he always does. Praise the way that he always prays. Now, just a side note here, application. We should not go looking to pick fights over religious freedom, but we also should not avoid them, okay? We should not go looking to start fights with the government, but we should never change what God has asked us to do, okay? I'm not going to put too fine of a point on that. It's been too close, Since COVID, I'm not getting any too close to anything. I'm just saying in general, okay, we need to be willing and ready to defy anything that would call us to sin against God. That's the reality. Verse 10, when Daniel knew... I already read that. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Now, just stop there for a minute. I I need to give you a little archaeological piece of information here. The windows in the Persian homes were not big and broad. So I always imagine Daniel being like, whatever, open the blinds and pray so that everybody can see. That's not really what's happening here. Actually, the windows in the homes were up higher and they were fairly small, and they were really for the purpose of airflow, and they were per- for the purpose of sunlight. The point being that Daniel's not going out of his way to try to get thrown into a lion's den here. Okay? He's, not, he's not courting martyrdom. He's just being faithful. He's doing exactly what he always did. These guys are very strategically and maliciously trying to catch him doing something that they can hang him with. So they're like way up, looking through the window up in the tall, trying to make sure that they can see. And by the way, they know exactly when he prays. What does that tell you? It tells you he probably prayed at that time for a really long time. It tells you he was consistent in his behavior. Verse 12. They came near and said before the king concerning his injunction, O king, Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? King knows what they're, I mean, they're setting him up. Hey, didn't you say, you said it right? You said this, right? You know, journalists always do that, right? They're like, did you not say on August uh, of the 5th and, you know, 2003 uh, that you, you know, they do that and 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 they do that because they're about to try to hang you with what you said. The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Verse 13, then they answered and said before the king, well, Daniel, (laughs) it's like, here it comes, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, you notice what they refer to him as? They don't say, Daniel, who's our boss. They don't say, Daniel, who's in charge. They don't say, Daniel, who's the great, uh, respected prophet. They say, Daniel, who's one of the exiles. In other words, he's a slave, he's a foreigner, he's a nobody of Judah. He pays no attention to you. Oh, what are they doing there? They're stroking his ego a little bit. Watch out, king, this backwater exile He he doesn't respect you. He doesn't honor you. He wants your job. Watch out. They're just, they're so manipulative. I want you to see that. He says, he pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. In other words, he's praying to his God, not through you. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. Now the king is immediately bothered by this news because he likes Daniel. He respects Daniel. He has great affection for Daniel. Clearly he had some kind of relationship with Daniel, and it, it really bothers him. Oh, these guys totally tricked me. They got me to sign this knowing that they were going to use this to blackmail me to get Daniel out of the picture. They, they, he immediately sees what they're doing. They go on, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then, uh, verse 15, these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So just in case he forgot, they remind him of the reality that he can't overturn this law. It's the way it worked in the, in the, the laws of the Medes and the Persians is that he does not have the power to overturn something once he signed it into law. And they knew that. Just a side note here you know really grieved darius that his friend daniel was now going to to essentially be sent to death because of his decision i just want you guys to take note of the fact that you may not want to think this or you may not want to think about this but the reality is that your sin the check for your sin it always gets picked up by someone else it does We like to think that our sinful decisions, our sinfully motivated choices only affect us, but they don't. They affect people, and guys, listen, they usually affect the people we love the most, spouses, kids, parents. Darius loves Daniel. He wasn't trying to harm Daniel, yet he made a prideful, ego-based decision that was sinful to write something into law, making him the mediator between him and God, and guess who's picking up the bill? Daniel's picking up the bill. But here's the good news. You might not be able to change the circumstances that you've caused by your sin that someone else is enduring, but God can. See, uh, spoiler alert here, but Darius doesn't get any sleep that night because he's stressed about his friend. What's gonna happen to Daniel? Here's the good news. God's taking care of it. Some of you guys have wounded your children. Some of you guys have wounded your spouses. Some of you guys have wounded people that you'll never be able to change the reality of what you've done to them. You'll never be able to undo the pain and the baggage of what has happened because of your sin in someone else's life. But God is working in the tomb where you can't see. That's good news. Someone needed to hear that this week. I just, that that point burned in my heart. You can't change the circumstances. That doesn't mean God isn't going to do it. So what does Darius say? He says, "Daniel, your God's going to have to deliver you." Let's keep reading, verse sixteen. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, "May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you." In other words, Daniel, your God's going to have to come f- through for you because I, my hands are tied. My hands are tied. <laughs> Verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night with no diversions were brought in to him, and sleep fled from him. The king probably normally would have had quite the entourage of things to entertain him that night. None of it was brought in. He had nothing but to sit and his own fear and his own anxiety that his friend Daniel perhaps would die because of his sin. All the comforts were denied him. Now, it might surprise you, but we're gonna stop right here in the narrative. Okay, you guys ever, you ever go to a play or something, you know, or, or watch a movie and the intermission is like right at the low point of the climb. Like, uh, is the hero gonna make it? What happens, you know? Like, that's what I'm gonna do to you today, okay? But the good news is you have the Bible in the lab you can read it yourself. So we'll, <laughs> we'll finish it tomorrow. I was like, <laughs> you're not allowed to read on. No, please do, read on. We're going to stop here because I, I actually think that that next week we'll focus more on the deliverance uh, of Daniel. But this week I want to focus more on the decision of Daniel. I want to focus more on the faith of Daniel. I want to focus more on the persecution of Daniel, and I want to think a little bit about it and how it has implication for us today. <clears throat> Our focus is going to not be on the deliverance of Daniel, but on the faith of Daniel. So if you have your handout, this is the part where you can start writing stuff in. Uh, by the way, did everybody get a handout? There's one here, there's one back there. If you ever come in and you see a stack of papers sitting there, grab one, um, and, and, and it's not every week, but, but they are there sometimes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you four things here that are as true today as they were for Daniel. Four things that are as true today as they were for Daniel. I want to go back through this narrative and I want us to double click on it, think a little bit more thoroughly about what do we see here that has application for us. You know, uh, there's not that much difference between the lives we live and the lives of the Old Testament saints. There's a few key differences, but there's a lot of similarity. There's a lot of continuity between the faith of the Old Testament believers and the faith of New Testament believers. So we have a lot we can learn from these from these texts. The first thing I want you to write down in number one there is that we have an enemy bent on our destruction. We have an enemy bent on our destruction. The satraps show their cards a little bit, don't they? They show their cards a little bit, and the way that they refer to Daniel, what do they call him? They call him an exile. What is that? They call him a Jewish exile. There, there's some ethnic hatred going on there. There's some anti-Semitism going on. Even back, you know, 600 years or whatever it was, probably more like 400, 400 years before Christ, there was still already some sort of anti-Semitism happening there. Now, these satraps, they had political motives, but they were ultimately, listen to me, this is important. These satraps were ultimately puppets in a much larger operation. Did you know that? Let me zoom out for a moment and just help you to consider some some timeless truths about the enemy, okay? What do we know about the enemy? Well, first of all, we know that the enemy hates God, and the enemy hates everyone that belongs to God, and the enemy hates everything that reflects God, And the enemy hates everyone who is loved by God. And the enemy hates everything that is intended to be used by God. Do you understand that? Believer, you have an enemy. He hates you because he hates God. And God loves you. And you're made in God's image. And God has plans for you. And God has intentions for you. God hates anything that God loves. God has. Or, sorry, Satan hates everything that God loves, and Satan hates everything that God has plans for. And listen to me. This is why Satan hates the Jews. He hates them. He hates them because God said he loves them. I mean, are you watching? Are you watching the news? It's insane. The anti-Semitism in our own country and the institutions of academic thought, the place where people are supposed to be smarter than stupid, are being so racist against the Jews. Why, what's going on, how does this happen? How did what happened in Israel happen? I'll tell you, Satan hates everything God loves. He hates everything God loves. And that's why the Jews have endured more, and Christians as well have endured more persecution than anyone ever will in history. So what else do we know about the enemy? We know that the enemy leads and represents an entire crime family with many proxies. It's important we think about the enemy that we realize, um, yes there's Satan and yes there's the demons, but, but he is part of a much larger crime syndicacy, right? It's, it's kind of like, we keep in the news, we keep hearing these words, proxy war, we keep hearing that, what does that mean? Okay? If you do some research on that, you'll find that Iran actually funds and sets up these kind of proxy governments and they use them to do their fighting for them. Satan does the same thing. He does the same exact thing. And what's happening here in the story of Daniel is that, th- that the enemy is using the satraps as a proxy for his ultimate desire, which is to destroy God's people. Are you seeing that? That's what's happening here. L- listen to John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus says about the Pharisees, who, by the way, were also part of the crime family of the, of the, of the enemy. Uh, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> Just let that sink in for a second. Jesus looks at the Pharisees, supposed to be the most holy, the most religious, the most devout, the most set apart, the most godly. He says, you, not, you're, you're attributing, you're, you're, you're walking in some character that reminds us of the devil. He's saying, you are from, birthed from, your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. In other words, you're fighting a proxy war. You're the proxy of the devil. You're a syndicate of a much larger uh, scheme here. And then he says something about the enemy. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. What does that tell us? It tells us in Genesis chapter three that Adam was, uh, that the goal of Satan was to murder Adam and Eve. He wanted him dead. And the consequences of sin is death. He's the murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. He's a liar because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Back to the story for a minute. How exactly are the satraps seeking to eliminate Daniel? Through lies. That's what they're trying to do because they are of their father, the devil, just like the Pharisees put Jesus on the cross. They hated Jesus because he's the son of God. They hate Christians. Because they, are, they belong to Christ. We are in Christ. The Bible, uh, and you may not like this, this is not really fit with our Western sensibilities, but the Bible divides all created reality into a strict binary, one dichotomy. You're either in this side or you're on that side. You're either the kingdom of God or you're the kingdom of darkness. One or the other. What else do we know about the enemy? We know that if, if you're on God's team, then you are drawn into a conflict. I just think we forget that sometimes. It just, we just forget that we are, it's, this, is, this is a wartime. I'm not talking about your, your American national identity. I'm talking about your true spiritual, eternal identity. You are, listen to me, you are in a conflict. And the enemy does not just want to stumble you. He wants to devour you. I'm not trying to scare you, kiddos. I'm not trying to scare you, but this is important, right? What does Peter tell us in 1 Peter 5, 8? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, ro- prowls around fitting like a roaring lion, seeking someone to snuggle with. <laughs> Just want to make sure you're awake. <laughs> seeking someone to devour. What else do we know about the enemy? We know that his kingdom is expanding and re-manifesting. What I mean by that, what I mean by that is that there is something that the New Testament authors call the spirit of Antichrist, and it is continuing to manifest itself over and over and over again through history, and it will continue to do so until Christ puts it away forever. It continues to manifest itself. It's the same spirit that we saw. It's kind of like, think about nesting dolls, except for the dolls get bigger, not smaller. Okay, Uh, think about that. We saw it in the garden. We saw it in Pharaoh, this spirit in Pharaoh that wanted to destroy the children, the spirit of Pharaoh that wanted to oppress God's people. We saw it even in Saul's bloodlust for David. Why did he have this uncanny hatred for David? Because David represented the messianic line. We see it in the book of Esther, right? With Haman's desire to completely ethnically purge the Jews. We see it in Nehemiah's days with the enemies that were fighting against the building of the wall. For those of you that are historians, we see it in Antiochus Epiphanes. If you don't know who that is, we'll talk about it in a few weeks. We see it in Herod the Great that wanted to destroy every baby because he was afraid of the Messiah coming through one of these children. We see it in the Pharisees who put Jesus on the cross. We see it in Caesar Nero who burnt Christians alive who fed them to lions? We see it today, and we're going to see it in the end, continuing to remanifest itself, over and over and over. But here's the good news. Here's what we read in Revelation chapter twelve, verse nine. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who was that? It's the devil. It's the enemy the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice saying, "Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of God and authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by what? By the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony keep reading, you'll see that forever they will be put away once and for all. Both kingdoms may be growing and both kingdoms may be recapitulating and reappearing in multiple ways. The spirit of Antichrist continues to come in this world. It's the spirit of Antichrist because whenever it comes, it comes seeking to diminish and destroy the glory of Christ, the work of Christ. But every time it comes, it may grow larger, but make no mistake, it is dying. It is going away. It will come to an end so what what do we know again we have an enemy that is bent on our destruction number two write this down number two in your outline not only do we have an enemy bent on our destruction but his priority is to devour your faith first and then your future it's a really important sentence if you take away anything this morning, take away this. The priority of the enemy is to devour your faith first and then your future. We think it's the other way around. And I actually think he's winning when we think that. In the narrative, we would be short-sighted, we would be nearsighted to assume that this, this uh, the, the satraps, They're puppets, they're puppets, under the greater uh, work of the enemy here. They're just trying to get Daniel out of the way because they're jealous. But what you need to realize is what the enemy wants here with Daniel is not the death of some old prophet. He doesn't want to devour Daniel's body. He He wants to devour Daniel's faith. That's what the enemy's after. Sam, how do you know that? Because nothing Honors God or glorifies God or pleases God more than your faith. Therefore, nothing is more hated and more sought to be destroyed by the enemy than your faith. He wants to devour your faith before he wants to devour your body. This is so important. It's so important. Do not be so naive to assume that Satan's greatest desire for your life is to mess up your plans to be happy and successful and healthy and wealthy. That's a lot of us in the world. We've been lied to. We've been told this narrative that Satan's greatest desire is to keep us from getting a good parking spot or or make me have a cold, or give me cancer, or all this stuff is just the devil, the devil, the devil, the devil. Okay, maybe, he, you know, he certainly might be behind that, but let me tell you what he really wants to do. He wants to get you so happy, so content, so distracted by the stuff in this world that you completely leave the back door open to your faith, and he can come in and devour your trust for God. And this is why the prosperity gospel is so Harmful because it tells us that Satan's number one objective is to keep you from being comfortable. That's a lie. Satan may be the greatest advocate for your comfort that you could ever find. You think his greatest goal is to, to, to just give you a hard life? His greatest goal is to see you deny Christ. His greatest goal is to devour your faith. His greatest goal is to give you so much love and affection in this world that you would choose it over the greater, superior joy of God himself. And that's what these satraps are hoping on. This is what they're banking on. They're going, surely Daniel, or I should say that, that, that the enemy is, is saying, surely Daniel will choose his posture and his, 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 uh, his life and his influence and his, his platform over obedience to God. But they didn't understand what Daniel was made of. Daniel wasn't made. He wasn't, he wasn't a man made by this world. He wasn't a man made for this world. He was a man that lived and existed in another world. He was a man who had divested his portfolio from this world. So the thought of his body being eaten alive by lions, frankly, probably frightened him, but in no way stopped him from doing what he always did. Because what he was made of was he was made of faith and a deeper trust. Daniel's ultimate priority for his life was not comfort and pleasure and ease and influence and so many of the things that we spend all of our life chasing and assuming that God surely wants us to have, when in reality what God is mostly trying to do in us is produce faith and prepare us for the eternal weight of glory. Satan wants American evangelicals to go on believing that his greatest concern is their comfort. I really believe that. I, I believe, I, as, long as, as long as Satan is distracted us thinking that, that he's just there to make us uncomfortable, he, he completely devours our faith. I really, I really believe that. The third thing you need to write down, not only is his priority to devour your faith first and your future number three, his weapon is lies. So our defense must be truth. His weapon is lies. So our defense must be truth. They cannot hang Daniel on his performance, so they hang him through their lies. And listen to me, this is true of you, believer. Satan cannot hang you on your performance. You're saying, sure you can. I've done all kinds of things wrong. Yes, you have. You're saying, I got all kinds of performance issues, I've done all kinds of evil things, and Satan puts it in my face every day, reminds me every night when my head hits the pillow, that you're not worthy, and you know what, Satan, His his number one thing is to remind you of what is true. But he leaves out one very important detail, and that is that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your performance, he sees the better performance of Christ that has been imputed to you by faith. So you may not be as squeaky clean as Daniel, but Jesus was way more squeaky clean than Daniel and his perfect performance has been imputed to you. So when the enemy comes and seeks to devour you through lies, you say, Christ's perfect life is imputed to me. I have his righteousness, I have his perfection. I have been saved by Jesus entirely. I don't remember who said it. Somebody said it once that Satan is a toothless lion it's true he's a toothless lion he has no power to harm you all he can do is run his mouth so what does that mean for us It means that our primary objective is to fight the battle of belief to fortify our minds like ephesians 6 says we don't battle flesh and blood principalities and powers therefore put on the whole armor of god which if you go and you read that every single piece of armor is another way to say believe the gospel It all comes back to believing the gospel and every single part of your being and your identity saying, I believe and I receive all that Christ has done for me. It's not my own performance. It's his performance. Number four, victory. I gotta speed up. Oh, man. Victory comes in the moment of obedience, not in the the moment of deliverance. The reason that I stopped the narrative here at verse 18 largely is because I want you to see that the victory here for Daniel is not the moment that the lion's mouths were shut. The victory for Daniel was the moment that he obeyed God. And it's so important that what drives us is not a desire to avoid circumstances, but rather a desire to please God. Daniel was not driven by a hope that if he had faith, he would not die. In fact, Daniel had no guarantee that he would not be eaten. And can I just say, by the way, that thousands of Christians have been devoured. And they were overcomers as well. Because they were not overcoming by, by, by avoiding hardship. They overcame because they trusted God and were fused to his victory. And now they are in glory. That's the message of Christianity. That's why we can suffer because we are willing to suffer out of obedience, not of a desire to somehow remove ourselves from discomfort or of pain. Now, let's end on a practical note. I have three minutes. <laughs> Oops. Um, I think we we need to step back here, we need to ask the question, okay, so Daniel had great faith, but how did Daniel come upon such great faith? Well, we're not actually having to guess about that because the author invites us into the secret life of Daniel, doesn't he? He brings us right into the chambers behind the curtains of Daniel's personal life. And what we find is that even though Daniel from the outside looked like every other politician, every other person in the same robes and the same haircut and the same accent and everything, what we find is that Daniel's life consisted not of just a politician, but of a believer who three times a day sought the Lord in prayer. And what I want you to see simply is this, that the substance of Daniel's faith was a direct correlation to the discipline of Daniel's spiritual practice. So let me give you three How did I put it in your handout? Three dimensions of Daniel's devotional life. Number one, it was disciplined. It was disciplined. Daniel's faithfulness was not an accident. It was muscle memory. My grandpa told me one time, he said, you know, when you get old enough, if you comb your hair the same way long enough, you don't even have to comb it anymore. My grandpa, like me, had just this wiry hair that just kind of did what you told it to do. So my grandpa just gets up in the morning and his hair's hair's back. It's been that way for 80 years, right? (laughs) Thus is the spiritual life. You know, we'd be mistaken if we read a, a, a story like Daniel chapter six and we go, wow, Daniel just really had some faith in that moment. No, Daniel lived a life of faith. He made thousands of decisions to trust his God. He got on his knees three times a day And that discipline created a trellis by which the fruit of spiritual formation could grow and thrive and bloom in Daniel's life. He was ready for the big exam because he took all the quizzes. Officers and soldiers know this. They get trained to operate in situations where they don't have time to think if you're in the military, you're going to be thrown into situations where you don't have time to question what the right thing to do is. You have to fall back on your training. Daniel fell back on his training. He was a man who trained his life in the posture of faith and formed himself in such a way that he said yes to Christ every day. And so when the great test came, he said, yes. He said, I'm in. Let me ask you, what does your devotional life of prayer look like behind closed doors? Someone said this week, it's a common observation that those with no regular prayer habits seldom do much praying at all. That certainly has been true of my life. When I don't have a disciplined rhythm, when I don't, have, when I don't plan on doing it, I'm not going to do it. So the first thing I want you to see is that his devotional life was disciplined. Number two, I want you to see that it was dependent it was dependent. The Jews often prayed standing. That's how they prayed. But yet in this narrative, the, 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 uh, the author wants us to note that Daniel was on his knees. He was on his knees. You can imagine Daniel having little divots in the ground, praying in the same place three times a day. He was consistent in his discipline of prayer. And he was an old man, So getting on his knees would be difficult as the years went on. And you would think that for a dignified man like Daniel, that perhaps God would be okay with him praying standing. But see, Daniel, he didn't grow out of dependence on God. He grew up into dependence on God. And that's what we do as Christians. We grow up to become more dependent on God. It's the complete opposite of our kids. We train our kids to be less dependent on us. God trains his kids to be more dependent on him. Remember that. Faith should be childlike, but it is not childish to depend on God entirely. Number three, Daniel's devotional life was directed. Directed at what? The author wants us to know in which direction Daniel prayed. If you go back and look at it, you'll see it said that Daniel prayed facing Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Well, he did that for one because that's the way that he was taught to do it, but he did that for two because Even though Daniel grew up and spent his entire life in Babylon, Daniel never lived in Babylon. His heart, his soul, his focus was all in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, listen, Jerusalem for the Jew was much more than a geographical location. And Jerusalem in the Bible is much more than a geographical location. Jerusalem represents, in many ways, the city of God. The hope of a future eternal dwelling place with God. So the fact that Daniel turned his attention forward meant that what he had set his affections on and what he had filled his life with was a future hope and where he would eventually be in the city of God. Just like Hebrews 11 reminded us about Abraham and the patriarchs. It says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, talking about Abraham, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward, listen, to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We need to posture our life in such a way where we get up every morning and we are not just consumed by the political things that are happening in the world or the the, the things that, that we see happening in our little world or the tensions or the stresses. We need to get up every morning multiple times of the day and we need to imagine the greatness of the future and the glory of God's city when it comes. Tim Keller said one time that he reads... J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Ring trilogy, every few years, he does it to baptize his imagination. I've been doing that. I've been listening to the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, and what it's been doing is it's been baptizing my imagination. It's, It's pulling me out of the dribble of constant bad news, and it's making me go, wow. I can imagine that if Tolkien could imagine a cool world like this, God the creator is gonna make an even cooler world that I can't even possibly begin to imagine. We need to have imaginations. And we need to sink our roots into this future hope that God is gonna do something so much better than we could possibly imagine. I'll end with Paul's words to the Corinthians in chapter two, verse six. He says, but as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear heard, no heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So how did Daniel endure this tribulation? He endured this tribulation because his franchise was not in this world. He was a man almost completely migrated into the next age. So the idea of him losing his life was a very simple decision. And that should be the shape of the life of the believer, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for for these truths, some of them Lord are are hard. But God, we we need to hear, we need to be reminded that in this moment, we are still in a conflict, that we have an enemy, and that enemy would desire to, to destroy and devour our faith. But God, as we'll see next week, we are not alone in the den. You have sent one greater than an angel to shut the mouth of the lion, to meet us in our deliverance or we say come quickly. Lord Jesus, we long for the day when you will once for all put death to death and eliminate our enemies forever and rule and reign in that great eternal city, New Jerusalem, putting Babylon as a far and distant memory in the back of our minds and wipe away our tears and bring justice to all of the wrongs that have been done over all of human history. Jesus, you are the judge of all things. And Lord, like Daniel, we sit in a pagan kingdom er, kingdom and administration where we are not at home, but we seek to be faithful. We seek to be useful like Daniel was to the king. We seek, Lord, to be a witness in this darkest hour, God. Lord, use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you.